this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome to the show regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from Brattleboro. Hey there, pretty lady. Hi, Olga. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. I know it feels, uh, we've been like so just busy enough that um, we haven't really seen much of each other. So it's good to put a face with a voice. Um, So if you've been following us lately, you know that we have been hearing from some of our political ancestors and we have come to our final reading this week, which is uh, our political ancestor, Governor Philip H. Hoff which I bet most of you didn't know, the H stands for Henderson. Sure didn't, Olga. Thanks so much for that. See? Didn't you need to know that? Yeah. So Philip Hoff is known as uh, the first governor elected in Vermont since uh, 1853. That was when we elected our first Democratic governor uh, in this state. He's, uh, for us Southern folks, he is a bit of a local boy. He was born in Greenfield, Massachusetts in 1924. Uh, died in April 2018. Uh, so we're we're really getting into our lived memory and lived experience now, Emily. As far as you know, so many of those governors they've been way back when, mm-hmm. you know. And now we're getting into real time here. He served from January uh, 1963 to January 1969. Uh, Before he was elected governor, he served in the U.S. Navy submarine service uh, from 43 to 46. Uh, In 1964, he established the Governor's Commission on the Status of Women, which we now know as the Commission on Women, or the Women's Commission, sometimes it's called. He was very active in leadership roles in the National Governor's Conference, as well as the New England Governor's Conference, uh, he failed to win his his 1970 campaign uh, for U.S. Senate, but he did go on uh, and chair the Vermont Democratic Party. And I believe he also served in the state Senate after that. Um, just as a little side note, I want to break away before we hear from Philip Hoff, and I'll tell you which speech we chose. But I would just want to break away for a minute because, you know, this is why I love doing this show, Emily, because we're always trying to look at the stories we tell. Um, about ourselves in Vermont. And I had always heard that Philip Hoff was the first Democratic governor, that there hadn't been one before him. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure the Democratic Party in 1960s versus 1850s was different. Well, in the 1850s, it was the party that upheld, upheld slavery and protected slavery. Well, you'll be interested to know that our, the first Democratic governor in Vermont, his name was uh, John S. Robinson, uh, Bennington boy. And he served just a year, 1853 to 1854. He was actually part of something I hadn't heard of before called the Free Soil Movement, which was against the expansion of slavery into the West. And he was actually elected. The reason he was elected was... Um, all the candidates that year had not received a majority of the votes and the active abolitionists in the state government gave him their votes. And that's why he in the state legislature had to decide who would be governor. And they voted for Robinson 
so the abolitionists put their um, vote behind him. That's very cursory information, but I found that kind of an interesting um, turn of events for our first Democratic governor in Vermont. Ah, the Free Soilers historic slogan called for free soil, free speech, free labor, and free men attracting small farmers, debtors, village merchants, and household and mill workers. That is pretty much Vermont at that time. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yes. So that was that was our Oh, first and oh, oh, always oh. sentence, Olga, who resented the prospect of Black labor competition, whether slave or free, in the territories. There you go. So it was actually anti-slit, like the world is a complex place, especially if you finish the sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many different reasons, again, like this is why the stories behind things are so important. Mm-hmm. There's so many different reasons that people can pursue the same end. Yes. And I think one of the most important things about um, actually getting stuff done in politics is sometimes accepting that people can have different reasons to want the same thing and sometimes collaborate across massively terrible ideological lines. Mm -hmm. So this is very interesting. So basically they didn't want slavery in the new territories because they wanted to protect it for white labor. I'm so glad you found that sentence because when I was just trying to get glean some information on the free soil movement, because I hadn't heard of it before, um, you know, I quickly grabbed a few sources and looked, you know, grabbed what I could. But in the time I had, I didn't find that last piece of information. But I knew something was off just because of how the description of how he was elected. Like that the abolitionists weren't um, supporting him to begin with, but then they changed their mind. So I knew something was like a little more complicated than it was appearing on paper. So thank you so much for doing some Googling while I was um, flapping my gums here. <laughs> really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so back to Philip Hoff. Uh, yeah, so he served from 1963 to 1969. We had gone back and forth on whether to read this his inaugural speech from 65 to 67. We're going to read the, the one from 1965, but... Which I'm realizing was not the first year that he was, it was not. No, actually, you're right. It was his second year. Sorry. So I, I'm sorry, listeners, to get deep insight into our process here. I'm happy to go to 1967 then, Olga, if you prefer 1967. Well, here's the difference between the two. I first leaned to 1965 because it was not his first year. So his first year was like, rah, 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 look at what we did. We've kind of like, yay, we've changed history. This is me extremely paraphrasing it. Um, 1965, I figured reality was starting to sit in, set in a little bit. Mm-hmm. I went to 1967 because by then reality is really setting in. But we're also a little deeper into the civil rights movement. Um, and we've passed the point in time where, you know, John F. Kennedy has been assassinated Malcolm X has been assassinated, but um, it's just before Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy are assassinated. Um, So it felt like maybe reality was deeper, the reality of maybe trying to get things done and make change. Um, Mm. So it's up to you. I can go either way. The short of it, 
folks, is whichever one we read, I'm going to link to the other one, and I hope you read that one, too. Let's go for 1967, then. Okay. We will do 1967. We like things to be a little less optimistic, don't we? <laughs> um, I need a minute to find it, then, though. Sorry. Sure, no problem. Also, dear home viewers who watch us on the public access stations, I really will hang something on the wall behind me soon, I promise. <laughs> I love how low rent we are. Just so folks understand our process too, since we're talking process today. You know, Emily and I are busy. And so we designed this, this podcast so we could do it on the fly if we needed to. Um, and given how busy we are, we do it on the fly a lot. Um, and uh, <laughs> this is what you get. So thank oh, yeah. you, listeners, for knowing that we are not perfect. Mm -hmm. We don't have perfect audio. We don't have perfect scripts. Um, you've got me as the editor afterwards just trying to clean things up. And Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, and make sure we sound somewhat decent. But yes, we are definitely the in the low rent district of the podcast world. Um. <laughs> and that's okay because Vermont needs some more low rent districts right now. So yeah, I, I am that. now, I'm ready. I have 1967 in front of me on the computer. I can kick us off. Let's go. The inaugural address of Philip H. Hoff as it appears in the journal of the Joint Assembly Biennial Session 1967. Thursday, January 5th, 1967, inaugural address. Also, would like to point out, just for like the deep process history buffs here, the some of our earlier inaugural addresses happened at the first day of the legislative session. They were on Tuesdays, and we are moving towards them being a few days into the legislative session. Which is, I think, a good move. It's an interesting process thing. Um, I think it also sh demonstrates a further divide between the three branches of government, actually. Oh, interesting. Because the government on the first day, then it's like things are starting with the governor, right? Mm. The legislature is getting itself started self-governing in some ways, like self-organizing with, you know, having their own kickoff. And then the governor joins later. Anyway, That's here we are. Well, because some of those earlier uh, addresses to me always sounded more like an executive director reporting mm -hmm. to the board of a nonprofit. Um, so, hmm, okay. Here we go. My fellow Vermonters, four years ago, when I first stood before you as a governor, I suggested that we pause to reassess our strengths and weaknesses as a state, that we inventory our resources and needs, that we set realistic priorities for the future. We charted a course and have moved ahead. I need not detail our progress here. You know it well, it's a matter of pride to us all. Yet the pace of change is such that our progress as a state must be greatly accelerated. We must be ever mindful of our responsibilities, not only to ourselves, but also to future generations of Vermonters. We assemble again today to reaffirm the power and authority of free choice in our society. We must address ourselves again to the task of providing direction to the great changes taking place in our state. The world today demands that we do more than reaffirm our pressed efforts and rededicate ourselves to the public good. These times demand continuing reappraisal of our collective objectives as well as of our individual goals. 
The forces at work in our state and nation demand that we re-examine the very goals we espouse as a society. We find our system of values under constant challenge. The laws of the jungle, the survival of the fittest, is being replaced by a new humanism which tempers the laissez-faire of the human spirit. We must act today to meet more than mere needs for survival. We have the resources and the talents to plan and work for more than minimum standards. We address ourselves today to create in the conditions for a full life. We now must create policies more on the basis of achieving what we can become than on the basis of what is necessary to merely catch up or keep pace with the world. In Vermont, we have recently capitalized upon this new concern for the common good. This is evidenced by the increasingly active role of religion in community affairs. It is illustrated by the new awareness of the private sector of the economy that its social responsibilities extend far beyond the cold calculation of a balance sheet. Indeed, our businesses today increasingly weigh economic profit and loss on a social scale. Our academic community no longer screens itself from the human condition with an ivy curtain. Society has put man into fresh focus within the context of a world community. This fact alone makes it incumbent upon us to move beyond the myths of the past, myths that we all know are honored in public by those same persons who discredit them in private. Token action is no more appropriate today than our token words. Ours is the task to match rhetoric with responsibility and debate with deeds. Oh, I love that line. Mm -hmm. We have yet to do many things that must be done if Vermont is to maintain its new rank among our more progressive states. We have yet to do other things that must be done if Vermont's progress is to be meaningful for those who come after us. Ours is a small state with tremendous and as yet relatively untapped and unspoiled natural resources. Our population remains relatively small, although expanding in numbers and talents. This is at once our continuing challenge and our immediate opportunity. The challenge will always be with us, but time is running out on our opportunity to blend present resources into future possibilities for an ideal society. The voters of Vermont have demonstrated their desire to fill in the details of the dream of a better life, a life where every man is provided the means to realize fully his potential and to exploit fully his leisure time. Vermont has historically been a byway, politically as well as geographically. This is no longer true, and despite our respect for the past, we cannot act as though it is still true. Each day, we are more and more threatened by the ever-sprawling cities and suburbs to the north and south of us. Our lakes, rivers, and streams are increasingly objects of new exploitation. Just as Vermont was once a corridor for the French and Indians, for the early pioneers seeking a new freedom and living space, Vermont today is a corridor, but less for the movement of people than for new population, new commerce, and new industry. Full recognition of the pressures of this population surge must be incorporated in our attack on the problems of Vermont today and for the future. Ours is the task of meeting today's needs with the vision and foresight required to guide future development at the same time. To do this realistically, we must break with those social and political vestiges of the past that no longer serve the realities of the present and the known potential of the future. The progress of the past several years has given us a new base from which to view the future, but progress is relative and today's vision of our advance has added new dimensions to tomorrow's needs. 
We have talked for years about the absolute necessity for updating our state constitution. It has been found to be in conflict with the supreme law of the land. Yet, efforts to convene a constitutional convention to unshackle us from the long outmoded and ignored covenants failed because a few persons of faint heart but staunch purpose desired time to procrastinate. I, love, I have to read this line again because I love it so much. The long outmoded and ignored covenants failed because a few persons of faint heart but staunch purpose desired time to procrastinate. <laughs> Our actions must be considered and deliberated, but we can no longer afford to cloak delay in the guise of deliberation. We must act with courage and determination if Vermont is to realize its unlimited potential as a showcase for social and political advance. Constitutional reform is needed now. It is proposed again as the prelude to the reorganization of state government I will recommend at a special session in 1968. This is not a recommendation of change for the mere sake of change. Neither is it a threat to our basic institutions. It is a proposal to revamp and reshape our public resources and instruments of government so that they may be focused more directly on the problems of our people. Government must function efficiently as an administrative instrument if it is to be effective as an agency for social reform. We have demonstrated in many areas, particularly in the realm of natural resources, that the traditional organization of state executive agencies is inadequate. It does not permit us to deal effectively and efficiently with the challenge of protecting our physical environment and enhancing its usefulness to our citizens. The same is true in the areas of our human resources. We are concerned with total man and his total environment. The articulation of this problem was a concern of the early 1960s. Its solution is the challenge we now face. Our opportunity diminishes with each day of delay. The forward thrust of this program for Vermont and its people has three times been endorsed by the electorate. It is our duty to keep faith with the people and to build upon the advances of the past several years. The details of this program will be debated as they should be. Alternatives may be proposed, but no man or group of men can ignore the necessity for action and action now. Nor can we permit petty partisanship to stand between Vermont and its destiny. Dramatic evidence of our determination to accept responsibilities would be given by prompt approval of the proposed reforms of our social welfare program. This proposal already has been approved by the Legislative Council. I see it as more than merely increasing public services and streamlining the administration of public programs. I see it also as a symbol of Vermont's determination to cast off the mantle of provincialism and our willingness to shape our institutions for effective action. Just as we act to meet immediate human needs in the areas of health and welfare, we must build for the future. Education remains the keystone of our long-term advances as a state. No area of public endeavor is of greater importance in our efforts to provide for a quality environment and for personal excellence. We've made great strides in improving Vermont's educational system. These programs of material aid to education must be continued and expanded. I will therefore recommend significant increases in state financing for our schools and colleges. This is not enough, however. 
We must further strengthen our programs to enrich the quality of education. Redistricting is underway and requires continued effort. The State Department of Education is being strengthened and improved. Here again, emphasis must be placed on the human equation on innovation and increased assistance to the personnel guiding the intellectual development of our young people. At the same time we strengthen our internal educational programs, we should act to buttress the state's position in relation to the federal government. I can think of no more effective way of protecting the state's control over education priorities than full legislative participation in the education compact. Such action would again demonstrate our willingness to utilize all available resources to meet our responsibilities to our young citizens. I would like to depart from my prepared text here to say that no one believes in the federal system more than I do. But here again, I think the key word is state responsibility. Unless we demonstrate the capacity and the willingness to meet our problems, the drift to federal controls will continue. The same theme of conserving our resources and providing for their maximum benefit to our people is reflected in our continued effort to protect and enhance Vermont's great wealth of natural resources. Legislation will be introduced to implement recommendations that reflect two years of study and planning in this area. Or in this area. Corridors of scenic beauty along our highways and also among our streams demand public protection. Land use must be controlled if we are to prove our true concern for the beauties of Vermont. Natural areas, parks, stream improvement and pollution control and other elements of a greatly expanded public, public recreation program require legislative action and increased state support. These activities promoting orderly development of our natural resources and recreation potential are but one aspect of our complex economy. Our record-breaking economic development demands continued attention to promotion of a strong industrial base for a healthy balance. This can be encouraged through additional liberalization of loan guarantees under the Vermont Industrial Building Authority and through a program of industrial parks. Additional aid to manufacturing industry would be futile without concurrent action to increase our minimum wage schedule and to expand and bolster allied compensation and unemployment programs. We need too to strengthen the public's role in the maintenance of industrial peace through a Labor Relations Act. Vermont cannot afford to penalize persons for living and working in the state. We're at a stage in our economic development where we have to compete for skilled labor just as we compete for new employment opportunities. This fact is above and beyond the moral question of assuring all citizens adequate return for his or her skills and talents without discrimination on the job or in regard to housing. The state must meet its own responsibility to its employees through a new classification plan and significant salary increases to its own personnel at the same time it acts to protect those in the private sector. These programs to enhance living and working conditions in our state can be augmented and expedited through expanded and more efficient services to local communities. But here again, we must not lose sight of our ultimate objective of extending the, these services to our citizens through agencies that command the resources necessary to do the job well. Certainly, all citizens of the state will share the benefits of increased aid to regional planning and to regional development programs with those living in the participating towns and cities. Our own experience has demonstrated the value of this regional approach, just as we know the benefits to be derived from district courts with full-time judges. This court reorganization should be fully implemented and the same principle should be applied to our present system of state's attorneys. Again, the theme is action now to assure that Vermont meets its responsibilities to its citizens 
so that they can, in so they in turn, can more fully realize their individual potential for a creative and constructive life. Ours is the opportunity to build our community to unique specifications before we face the necessity of having to tear down vast areas of urban blight and decay. Ours is the opportunity to protect our wealth of rivers, mountains, forests, and lakes, rather than having to restore or replace them because of uncontrolled exploitation. Ours is the opportunity for controlled growth and planned development. Recognition of this opportunity, however, is not enough. We must meet our responsibility for constructive action. This, then, is the broad sweep of the task we face together. The lines of attack are more fully detailed in legislation proposed for your approval and in special messages I plan to present to you from time to time. Tax reform, use of general fund operating surplus are among the topics I plan to treat in detail in this manner. I am convinced that with divine guidance and by working together in our concern for the future of Vermont, we can and we will demonstrate the courage and the wisdom to utilize our resources and our talents to enrich and elevate the lives of our citizens. I am confident that together we will weave the vision of our people into the fabric of our community life. With imagination and initiative, I am certain we can raise the quality of the lives of our citizens so that Vermont is the hallmark of progress for New England and the total U.S. And that is the end of Philip Hoff's 1967 inaugural speech. Um, before we dive into our conversation, Emily, I just want to say, um, like you, I think the, the reference to constitutional um, reform caught my attention. So again, quick Google. There's probably so much more to be known here, but I did find something on the Vermont Historic Society's page uh, that talks a little bit about Philip Hoff, but talks about how in the 1960s, uh, up until the 60s, Vermont's constitution specified that each town, regardless of its population, had one representative in the oh, house. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right, right. So um, in, the, in 1962, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the one town, one vote um, apportionment violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And in 1964, the Vermont Supreme Court came to the same decision in the case of Buckley versus Hoff. Um, and then a year later, the legislators passed a plan for reappointment, uh, which cut the number of House members from 246 to 150. Um, and there is, um, I think it's the Vermont Statutes Online, Oh, Secretary of State, there is something on the 1969 constitutional, what they called it, convention referenda. So there's even more uh, interesting information there, mm. which I will link to in the show notes. So, so I believe here, that's what they're referring to. Yes, that's a huge, so that is like a deep restructuring of government, right? right. So two other things that happened right around this address is Act 250 was passed in 1970. That's right. I was trying to remember this. Our landmark land use anti-sprawl bill, right? And he talked, right? There's like huge portions of the speech that are about protecting us from sprawl. Mm -hmm. 
And the Agency of Human Services was established in 1969. Oh. And so there's a lot here, right? Like we have, you know, the community action agencies were set up nationally around this time. Um, a big emphasis on the government's role in poverty alleviation and social services and moving from sort of the town by town, poor farm, um, I think every town still has like a human services person. Oh, yeah, what they call it a human welfare. Human welfare. So like moving from that framework to the state's ability to receive federal funds mm-hmm. in order to carry out these services, right? There's references there to that. And so the Agency of Human Services was established in 1969. Interesting. Okay. So we have like, this is a real foreshadowing or right in the midst of these massive restructurings of state government into the state government that we are all operating in today, right? Like there have been, I would say like the only really significant restructuring after this is just the Brigham decision and the change in school funding. Yeah. And it's like pretty much like everything else is like, that's what we're all chilling with now. Talk about a political inheritance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We are living it in this moment. Um, So I would love to hear from you, Emily. Uh, Thank you for that, that beautiful explanation. But I'm curious, you know, for you, um, up until this point, we've been hearing from people who aren't of your party. You know, we've been hearing mostly from Republicans, Uh, people living in different times than us. You know, the 1960s is getting a little bit more into our family histories and and closer to our own memories um, and our own experience. So what's your feeling? Did this excite you? Are you like, oh, I've heard this before and it's nothing's changed? I mean, what are you thinking here? Um, So I feel, I felt very aware through this that while this was before I was born, this is very much like lived political memory of many of the people I serve with. Um, that this is part of their political consciousness as a human who was formed and forming. Mm-hmm. Um, so that feels very important in terms of sort of like anchoring the experience of the folks that I am anchoring my experience with. It's like a very abstract sentence, excuse me. Um, I liked it. I was with you. I was hanging okay, there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And then also, you know, Vermont and the changes from the 60s, the migration from the 60s, um, the environment, like all of that is the Vermont that we're living with now. And honestly, the Vermont that we are really about to lose or move away from, right? Like the migration of the boomers into Vermont shaped the Vermont we're living with mm-hmm. um, in hugely significant ways. And actually, can I back you up a little yeah. bit, Emily? Yeah. Um, so you talk about the boomers moving to Vermont. So we had in the 60s, I think he was talking more about what we called the hippies moving to Vermont. Well, those are boomers. Which are boomers. But oh, now okay. there's a number of boomers who are retiring to Vermont. Ah, so yes. like, can we parse that out a little bit yes. to make sure? All right, thank you. I meant the hippies moving to Vermont. Okay. Who grew um, up to be the boomers. <laughs> yes, who were the boomers then and are still, but like that, the hippie migration to Vermont um, 
which shaped the state, um, you know, great society, all of those things that happen, you know, that's, this is the one that feels sort of like the most, um, I don't think this story has been rewritten yet, I guess is what I'm saying. I think the previous stories that we have read had been rewritten to some degree and maybe patched over and maybe shaped a little bit, but like, I think we're still just sort of living with this one. And even this, you know, we have yet to do many things that must be done if Vermont is to maintain its new rank among our more progressive states. Yes. I don't know. Yep. I, what stood out to me in this uh, speech was, I think a little bittersweet. On the one hand, I, I really appreciated him talking about, and, and, one reason I'd kind of lean towards this, this speech is, you know, he talked about moving beyond um, making it work, you know, from surviving to thriving, which you and I have talked on this show a lot, mm-hmm. and, you know, raising the minimum wage and making sure that people could have their bread and their roses. I think he called it their full work and their full leisure. Um, And I appreciated that. And I also heard at times, you know, his frustration with things not moving forward. Uh, That great line about uh, taking time to procrastinate, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) which I just, I just thought was so beautiful. It also reminds me of my own inner critic, um, what it gets up to when it's left alone. Um, But there was also a little bit of, for me, as someone who's living in Vermont now and and working in the Vermont economy, of feeling like, well, guess what, dude? It does feel like we're penalized sometimes trying to make an income in Vermont. Mm -hmm. You know, like that doesn't, that doesn't feel like that changed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was, like I said, it was a little bittersweet to, to hear someone talk about like, yes, 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 please give us more of that. And then be like, where'd it go? What happened? (laughs) Well, he really did explore um, quite articulately this tension between supporting business Mm -hmm. and supporting workers that's usually described as opposing forces. And I think he articulated really explicitly um, and very eloquently the fact that actually the two can support each other, right? That um, if we want, and this is an environment that we're absolutely operating in. If we have, if we want to attract workers to the state, if we need folks here working, then we need to make sure that their needs are being met, right? And that their rights are being protected. Um, And that this is sort of, and that like businesses will thrive as a result. And that's a very, Um, I appreciate that he said it. I wonder how much it was like a real pushing of the envelope at the time Mm -hmm. compared to now where saying that is still a pushing of the envelope. Um, And this is at the time where like, you know, the region, it sounds like the regional development corporations were being established. The regional planning commissions were being established. Um, And what it takes to sort of just like hold that, truth through all of these years of history um yeah i'm also curious 
when the re- this is like so deep and dorky, but like when the regional development corporations and the regional planning commissions and even the community actions were established right now, right? They're like separate regional entities, which is great because people get like sort of like local knowledge, local support, some state funding, not enough, maybe more back then, who knows. <laughs> but right now there is like no central um, planning. Mm-hmm. Source or str- like strategy source or anything like that for either of those regional entities. They have sort of like a collaboration body where they're sort of the directors of the agencies meet regularly. Right, um, right. And of course we have like the agency of natural resources and the agency of commerce, um, but sort of a more direct accountability and control mechanism or the Office of Economic Opportunity, which sort of works with the community action agencies. Um, It's really sort of like a funding relationship rather than a collaboration or a leadership relationship. And I'm curious if that was always true or if that was sort of a result of some real like anti-government work in the 80s and 90s. Oh, good question. I'm I'm trying to remember. Oh my gosh, Paul! I'm so sorry. I'm forgetting your last name. Um, we've had him on the show. He was. Oh my gosh, my brain has shut down. But we what? talked about planning with him. Chris Campany? No. Um, oh. He was. He moved on to do part of the Vermont Futures Project. But he was Vermont Rural Development, Vermont. Oh, if I said it, you'd be like, oh, goodness. Um, while I'm talking, I'll, I'll quickly try to look him up. Okay. But the the point being, um, we talked to him about having a statewide plan, uh, economic plan, regional, you know, development mm-hmm. plan, the whole nine yards. And he was talking about how, yeah, Vermont doesn't do that. Uh, and it doesn't do what we do have from kind of the state perspective or the regional perspective really isn't adequate for um, Do you um, mean Paul Costello? Pardon? Do you mean Paul Costello? I think I might. He was the previous director of the Council on Rural Development. Yes. He came on the show a few times. Yeah. Yes. Him. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that was going to make my brain crazy. Thank you for that, Paul Costello, who has since retired. Yes. And actually, the executive director who replaced him, this is just some Vermont nonprofit gossip, super boring. Um, Brian Lowe actually just left. And so they're hiring a new executive director if anyone's feeling like they're the right person for that job. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting organization, folks. You check it out if you're not familiar with it. Yeah, if I was able to have a full-time job while legislating, I would be interested in that. You'd be good at that. Thank you, Olga. That's very nice of you. You are very welcome. It's very honest. So going back to Philip Hoff, you talked about how we're still sort of living the stories in that speech. Mm -hmm. Do you think we have examined those stories? at all or enough? No, I don't. 
Um, and I think part of it is that I don't really in some ways know how to, mm. um, partly cause we've never really, I think in some ways we've told them as stories, but never really fully realized them. Does that make sense? Hmm. Okay. Um, so I don't think we've ever like, I'm trying to think of a way to say this without nonprofit speak, but I might just use nonprofit speak. Like we have sort of this theory of change about the role of government. Right. Um, and we don't actually, we've never really tried it out to see if it works. And so it's really hard to like examine the story to be like, okay, we have this theory that government works, but like, no, we don't actually like, I don't know if anyone ever actually, if anyone really believes it enough mm. to explore it. And I guess maybe that's sort of part of the interesting thing here is that like, and just let's be explicit the when you say the theory of change of how government works. Um, what I mean, that? that government works like that's the theory of change that like government can work, that like government can serve as a positive influence in people's lives, not just for like law and order, but in fact, to improve lives. And so. It's hard to know. Yeah, it's hard to know, like what. But maybe it's because it's my story. So it's so hard for me to examine. I think we've done a lot of unpacking of our assumptions around Act 250 and around land use and land control and protection and what it means for us to um, you know, we talk about this sort of in terms of like trademark Vermont, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what it means for us to sort of fetishize Vermont's landscape or try to sell Vermont's landscape, what it means to like live and work in Vermont's landscape. We've talked, you know, I think a lot of people have talked a lot about whether or not that's actually keeping us from having sort of the housing and communities we need or not. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that's all been like really explored and hashed out pretty significantly. I think people just still like walk around with some of their assumptions about it. But um, I think the sort of pros and cons and underlying story there has really been explored. Um, I, but yeah, this sort of like assumption, the bigger assumptions here about sort of what is possible with Vermont being a progressive, progressive leader or what's possible um, around, say, the creation of the Agency of Human Services and what that means, I think could use a lot more, a lot more story. Um, yes, I, I'll share what was kind of running through my mind while I was going through Hoff's speech. Mm -hmm. And it's not fully formed. So it's just something I'm sitting with. I'm so be prepared for this not to be a very elegant diatribe here. Ready. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about boomers and especially like the phrase, okay, boomers. Right. And what I find so fascinating is, you know, Hoff is speaking to us in the sixties during the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. during a lot of social change and a lot of very necessary social change, a lot of which has yet to be realized fully, I yes. would say. But what I find fascinating by where we are sitting now and and a, a bunch of criticism around, say, the the boomers and being out of touch and not um not understanding 
the pressures of climate change or or some of those those conversations and yet in the 1960s a lot of the hippies moving to Vermont a lot of the folks involved in the civil rights movement are the boomer generation mhm and there's like this split i think in the way we think about this particular generation like the hippies and and the boomers not realizing they're the same people and asking questions about like okay so has this generation changed um has its priorities changed in generation why if that's the case if if you know former flower children are now these retire these wealthy retirees that type of thing mm-hmm. um and if that's the case you know we're not understanding if the generation has changed from what was thought to be very progressive and very um forward movement and social justice oriented to something that is now not that mhm we're not asking why <laughs> but also it makes me wonder what else when we look at our our history and where we are now what else are we compartmentalizing and creating either false connections or false um divisions and therefore like what are we not what dots aren't we following what what stories have we compartmentalized so we don't actually see where their impacts are now mm-hmm. or how things have changed um and things have just kind of been frozen in amber in one way or another um like i said i'm still sitting with that but mm-hmm. that's kind of partly what was was brewing for me when i was reading this speech i think we do we have a lot of i appreciate that frozen in amber um because i think we do have a lot that's frozen in amber right now and this sort of massive restructuring um and rethinking that occurred you know in the late 60s and early 70s in Vermont you know we named like really some pretty incredible changes and it feels like it's time for that again now mm. um we've been having some really serious conversations around what is the appropriate size of the legislature the appropriate staffing for the legislature the appropriate compensation for the legislature um we're rethinking what act 250 means in the context of climate change and climate resiliency and a need for housing and um act 250 really didn't have enough for clean to really keep our water clean right Which um something we're dealing yes. with now too is cleaning up our rivers yes. yes um and so wastewater right like there's what is the new structure for that we've done some pretty massive restructuring in education but really haven't gone far enough in terms of making sure our school, the kids in our schools are getting what they need and the teachers are supported um cuz again we're sort of patchworking onto these structures that we set in amber back then mm-hmm. um and I'm curious what the next you know we saw a massive turnover in our legislature this year this last biennium this biennium um and so I'm yeah, I'm curious about if that will make space or if, you know, um institutions are resilient things. Mhm. For better yeah. or for worse. Mhm. Yeah. <laughs> you use the word restructuring. Mhm. 
sometimes when we talk about change, we hear words like rebuilding or um, burning down and, and starting over. Um, mm -hmm. Where, when you think of the work that needs to be done, where on the spectrum is it? Is it, is it really like we need to really rehaul everything? Um, is it just sections that need restructuring? Like, is it that we need to restructure how we even think about government and then how we actually make that restructuring real? Like, oh, from gosh, you in the trenches, honey. Um, it's like nine o'clock in the morning on a Friday. Um, so <laughs> you with your big questions. So um, I think we need to restructure the legislature. I think, you know, um, it would be possible for us to function with 75 representatives or 50 representatives and then have more for the same resource, for the same financial resources, have a lot more resources available for those legislators who are still there. In the terms of like aides or staff or. Yes. Or okay. salaries or yes. You know, I. I do feel that it would be possible to represent 8,000 people rather than 4,000 people as effectively as I represent 4,000 people. But if you're one of those 4,000 people and you disagree, please be in touch. I'd love to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the agency of human services and what human services provision means in this day and age is a whole other thing. You know, we're really seeing our schools and our towns pick up pieces that our human services structure has really dropped. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a real push for like a reckoning around, um, you know, there's a slogan in um, mental health and um, disability justice, nothing about us without us, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a real reckoning about that sort of in the context of all anti-poverty work. Mm. Um, and, racial justice work. And so what does it mean to change our service provision so that people's needs are being met by folks in their community? And it's resourced by an organization that um, can connect to the federal government and um, can sort of see across things like, you know, we, so yeah, I think, um, I don't, you know, if I believed in burning everything down, I don't think I would be in government. Um, but maybe that's not true. And, um, but certainly we need to stop putting band-aids on everything and really rethink them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I often feel in our processes, not just in government, but in processes in general, we are really good at coming up with the initial idea, resourcing the idea, taking action, making the, the idea something concrete and real. But then we never build anything into our processes to uh, give that, that reality time to play out and then re-examine it mm -hmm. and refine it. We just kind of go. And then when it starts breaking down, then we put the Band-Aids on rather than mm. yeah taking that moment to to reevaluate things uh, at regular intervals and yeah. i think that's something just in general 
as a society, we don't do well. Mm-hmm. And then we're surprised when something breaks down. <laughs> as it's, an, you know, as it will do, because time does that. People change, needs change, things evolve, understandings evolve. Um, structures won't work anymore. Yeah. It's just kind of inevitable. Anything you want to add before we we head out for the day? No, I really, this has been a really fun tour through history. Um, I hope... I have flashes of it when I'm sort of going through my life. And so I really do hope that listeners also enjoyed it um, because it was dense and a little dry, but I think there was a lot to learn there. And I do hope we find ourselves a historian who wants to jump into this with us. Definitely. Well, thank you listeners. I found this um, a great exercise as well. It gave me some new perspective. It taught me how much I thought I knew about Vermont history and then didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thank you for that. Uh, really appreciate that little um, uh, flash of insight. Um, and it, it's given me a new perspective on some of the things we're experiencing now or a more nuanced perspective. And yeah, I, I will, I'm hoping to find a historian as well mm-hmm. to, to walk us through some of these things. As always, now, now that we're heading back into, now that we have started September, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's September. Um, we, and, and ramping up to the legislative session reopening. Uh, if there's anything folks want to talk about or topics they want covered, maybe reports going to the legislature soon that you want us to review, anything like that, please let us know. Emily and I will start looking at, you know, new, new conversation topics. And as always, you can drop us a line at the Montpelier happy hour at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you. Emily. Um. Yeah. yeah. So the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests um, and not the station or platform that you are listening to them on. And if folks want to talk to me about my views and opinions or their views and opinions, please be in touch. EmilyKornheiser.org. And as always, folks, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio stations, Friday at 2 and rebroadcasted at 8 a.m. on Wednesday. We want to thank all the underwriters that support the radio station and make uh, the programming possible as well as specifically we want to thank Brattleboro Community Television who shares this program uh, with other uh, access stations around the state. Big thank you to them. And hey, folks, have a great weekend, and we will see you soon. Take care. Bye.